Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Groucho Marx once said, I wouldn't belong to any club that would have me as a member. That, in a way, sums up the attitude and congressional career of former Representative Justin Amash of Michigan. The principled, dogmatic libertarian challenged the leaders of both parties to try and democratize Congress. He often stood alone on issues and touched the third rail as a Republican by becoming an early and outspoken critic of Donald Trump, ultimately voting for Trump's impeachment and leaving the GOP. Amash has been a Pritzker Fellow at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics this spring, and I sat down with him this week to talk about his life, his immigrant family and their great American story, his career, the current state of our country and its politics, and of course, the state of his old party. But before we get to that conversation, I have a favor to ask. If you like this podcast, if you like The Axe Files, take a minute rate us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It will help us expand our audience and reach new people with these conversations. And now my conversation with Justin Amash. Justin Amash, it's great to see you. I got to thank you right off the top for being a stellar fellow at the uh, University of Chicago Institute of Politics this You've really been a wonderful presence there. You're such an interesting guy because you don't really fit the sort of traditional political rubric, but you have a philosophy and uh, and I, uh, you know a libertarian philosophy that leads you, uh, you know, on the one hand to be um, very much about small government, lower taxes, and so on. Uh, on the other hand, leads you to uh, support criminal justice reform, uh, legalization of marijuana, abolition of the death penalty. Um, and you know, that's, that's a lot for the traditional circa 2021 political computer to handle. I want to explore uh, some of that with you, but, uh, before we do, I just want to talk a little bit about, about your, your journey, your family's journey and how you came to have the views that you've come. And then I want to talk, obviously, about the, the, the shit show that we see today, uh, which deserves some, uh, deserves some attention and certainly your perspective. Um, but your folks, uh, your folks uh, were um, from what is now Israel, uh, a, a piece of, uh, uh, of Israel, uh, Ramla, a town in cent- central Israel, they yeah, were on, my dad, on my dad's side, on my dad's side. Yes. Right. And, and they were expelled mm-hmm. uh, uh, after the, uh, the Israeli War of Independence in, in, in 1948. Um, talk to me about that and their experience, because they spent time in uh, refugee camps, I know. And um, in some ways, this is the great American story. We feel very blessed through all this. You know, we have this painful history where my dad was expelled from his home and became a refugee. And even before that, he was very poor as a Palestinian. Like he was um, he was the kind of Palestinian the other Palestinians made fun of for being poor. <laughs> so you can you can imagine the the level of poverty, like um, you know, no shoes, living together uh, with a family in one room, um, extraordinarily poor. And then when they became refugees, um, they had to just move from place to place for a long time. You know, they it was uh, a, an incredibly difficult life. You know, they were, were blessed with the opportunity in 1956 to come to the United States, um, where uh, a pastor and his wife 
and their family had sponsored my dad's family and said, hey, uh, you know, come live with us at first and we'll help you out. We'll get you going. And they came to the United States and uh, made a new beginning. In Muskegon, Michigan. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and, you know, that story of my dad's arrival in the United States and the, the fact that, you know, I can look at him now, he's, he's 81 years old, and he can see um, the success that his family has had, that he was able to start a small business. My brothers are running that business today. Um, he has a son who ended up as a United States congressman. I mean, what a story. Um, what a life. And I, presume, when I, was he, a, I presume he considers that a good thing, right? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> he, he does. Uh, you know, he, he gets as charged up about politics as anyone and, and can't believe what's going on in Washington these days. But, but yeah, he's, he's very proud. Um, you know, as a kid, I just remember thinking, boy, my dad had such a difficult life. And he worked so hard to to make it to where he is, and he started with nothing. And here he here he is in the United States, and look at him succeeding. You know, he has a business that um, that is successful. He has a family that's successful. Um, even as as children, you know, uh, even before we got to where we are today, you know, the fact that we could. We could live in a community and be just like anyone else in that community. It didn't matter what our background was. Um, it didn't matter that we started out in poverty. Um, we were here and, and we were succeeding. And my dad used to always say to us, it doesn't matter in this country what your background is. It doesn't matter what your religion is or your ethnicity. Um, it doesn't matter uh, how connected you are to the government, you know, because in a lot of parts of the Middle East, your connections to the government matter. It, that stuff he told us doesn't matter here. If you work hard, you can uh, provide for your family, and and I really believe that deep down in my heart. And um, and I know it doesn't work out that way for every family. You know, there's there are a lot of yeah, struggles right. in this country, but uh, we also must acknowledge that the United States is a special place that does provide opportunity for millions of people, many of whom come here as refugees or immigrants. Yeah. So let me ask you about that, because um, the party that you left uh, has become very much of a nativist party. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you battled the Trump administration as a member of the Republican caucus in Congress at the beginning, uh, right right from the beginning on his travel ban. Uh, uh, you you obviously must have had misgivings about his uh, his approach to refugees. Yeah, um, very much so. Yeah. So um, talk a little bit about that and how you viewed all of that through the prism of your own family's experience. Well, I mean, an uh, immigration generally, I've been concerned over the years with this uh, trend toward thinking immigrants should come here only if they're already highly successful. Um, that would have, that would have excluded my family for sure. Um, and mine, and mine, and, by yeah, the way. And, and so look, we have a, we have a country where lots of people came here who, uh, weren't the most highly educated people. They weren't the ones who had the greatest opportunity back in, uh, in whatever country they came from. Um, they were often people who were, uh, despised for one reason or another or, um, put down, um, and they came here seeking opportunity. And if we make this a place just for people who are already rich or already um, highly credentialed, you know, they've got uh, PhDs and, and then those are the people we're going to welcome and everyone else, I'm sorry, uh, you can't come here. I don't think that's really the American dream. Um, I think yeah. we're like we're we're leaving so many people out um, who can benefit, uh, you know, and and. It also, it also, and, Justin. It also belies the character of immigrants. Yes, uh, absolutely. Because immigrants, uh, in my experience, are generally the hardest working people around. I mean, they, they, uh, you know, immigrants who come here who are poor uh, often are the ones who are doing the hardest jobs, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, w working their asses off, frankly, 
I really don't understand the Republican fear of of immigration or immigrants. You know, if at least the Republicans I knew growing up um, said they believed in capitalism and opportunity. And look, a lot of these immigrants who come here from very bad situations are the ones who especially embrace capitalism and freedom um, because they very often come from situations where the government was overbearing, where a lot of their poverty was due to um, government policies that were discriminatory, that hindered their ability to succeed. Um, so, you know, a, a lot of these immigrants who come here are particularly interested in the things Republicans used to claim they cared about, you know, the uh, freedom and capitalism and opportunity and uh, the ability to, you know, succeed through hard work. These are, are values that Republicans talk about. So I'm not sure what the fear is. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think a lot of immigrants are coming to the United States thinking, oh, I want to go there because um, I just want to sit around and not do anything. They're, they're coming here charged up and ready to go. And Mm-hmm. And they see a, a wonderful environment where now they can put their their talents and skills to use, no matter how poor they were or how uneducated they might have been. Now they have a chance to really go out and, and just through hard work and effort provide for their families. And I think most of them are, are eager to do that. But you know what the argument is from uh, some of your old compatriots. Uh, it's that, you know, they come here, they they suck down our benefits they you know they they basically are coming here for an easy ride and we're paying for it and it, it fits a larger gestalt which is you know uh the our Amer- we're losing our america our culture you know our opportunities and uh you know uh Trump in particular, but certainly not limited to him, identified the enemies, you know, the immigrant uh, being chief among them. It's a pretty, it's, it, it, it is an insidious thing. It also, as I said, belies the truth of the story. Yeah. And I, I think um, Donald Trump used it uh, to his own benefit, to his own gain. You know, he, he figured he could um, charge up some segment of the population, which he thinks is still large enough to get him victories. It didn't work this most recent time, but it did work one time. And um, and I think that's a, a short-term strategy that may work. I don't think it's a long-term strategy in the United States. I think uh, Americans are welcoming people, uh, uh, kind and caring people. Um, they, they want to have uh, neighbors who come in uh, who are from different backgrounds, who can um, add to the 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 wonderful tapestry of this country. So I I, I don't think it's a long term strategy. And welcoming people has made them more likely to um, to adopt our our way of life and our system. If it's when you tell people no, you're not welcome here, that they think, well, there's something wrong. Maybe I want to fight this system. If you tell people, hey, you are absolutely welcome here they're much more likely to embrace it to say, isn't this wonderful? I mean, I, I think I'm an example of this, right? My, my dad came here and um, he felt welcomed in America. And as a result, our whole family felt welcomed. And I grew up thinking to myself, isn't this country great? Isn't this the, the most fantastic thing on earth? You know, I was privileged uh, to, have, to be born here in this country. Nonetheless, having an immigrant family like that, I was able to see, you know, what their struggles were in, in their, um, you know, early lives, my, both of my parents, and how they've come here and, and they were blessed. And it made me love the Constitution even more. It made me say, isn't this uh, the most amazing place where we care about each other, where we have a Constitution that protects people's rights, where anyone has an opportunity? And we should point out that your mom was a, 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 an, is an immigrant from Syria. So yes, that's uh, right, from Damascus, coming here as a uh, as an immigrant from Damascus, and coming here at a pretty young age too, um, starting a new life here. Uh, she was willing to to leave her home country of Syria and come here and start a new life only as a teenager, and um, and that was you know that was something. I, that really shows a lot of trust in this country and what it offers, what it provides, that you would do that, that you would leave 
a place you've only the only place you've really known throughout your life and come to a whole you know new country across the sea well let's talk about your own uh, education you went to uh, uh, christian uh, schools in 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 Kentwood, Michigan, where you grew up, and Grand Rapids uh, mm-hmm. uh, Christian uh, High School, which is a Calvinist school in um, in Grand Rapids, and you, and then you went to the University of Michigan, and you stayed there for quite a while. You uh, you were an undergrad there. Yeah. You went to law school uh, there, and that's where you you really sort of steeped yourself, as I understand it, in kind of libertarianism and libertarian uh, thought. Yeah, I mean, I think I've always been uh, fairly libertarian, and this goes back again to the the story of my childhood and and my dad's experience and my mom's experience and and just the way I was raised. I've I've always been a fairly anti-authoritarian um, person. I'm I'm against arbitrary authority. I I don't like the idea of of dictators or rulers. I like you know I, I like people to. Um, you know, work together and and lay down the rules in advance in a way that's transparent and obvious. I I felt that way since I was a kid. Um, you know, I'm, I've always been a big believer in the rule of law since I was since I was a kid, and I think the rule of law is uh, foundational to to liberty and to libertarianism. So I I would say that uh, as I got through college, I started to recognize that my views did not align perfectly with uh, a lot of my Republican friends. Um, You know, I thought of myself as a Republican going into college. I'd supported Republican candidates. um, And and ultimately, I ran for office as a Republican. But I I always felt uh, that I didn't quite align with Republicans on everything. And it was those college years that that sort of um, worked that out in my mind. And it's there that I came to realize, look, I've, I've quite, got quite libertarian views on things. And it really wasn't until after I was done with um, law school, uh, you know, say uh, around 2005 or so, that I recognized that I was just a libertarian. Um, I hadn't really tried to, like, categorize it or classify it before, but I, I went to Google and I typed into the you know search box my views what i you know thought might summarize my views like in a sentence and up popped um f a hayek um mm-hmm. you know uh, so i i read the wikipedia article on him i read it i said yeah this is this is uh, largely aligned with with my views on things and you know he called himself a libertarian i said i'm going to spend some time reading his works and looking into this and, so you, yeah. you 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 mentioned that you, uh, you you that you ran for office as a Republican. You you got your law degree. You went to work for a, a a large law firm for a while, and then you became the lawyer for your family business. And then at the age of twenty eight, uh, you ran for the legislature. Was that always something in your mind that you were going to run for public office? You know, as a kid, I I think that again goes back it goes back to my dad's story i i did think about things like being president of the united states like i've got pictures that i drew as a kid where you know i'm drawing myself as president and, <laughs> well and, that's pretty that's pretty indicative of something and so like you know i i obviously uh had those aspirations or like it, it was something in me as a, so it as wasn't a like you googled president of the united states read it and said <laughs> yeah that's what i think i am yeah no no as a kid <laughs> i i thought that but you know as i got older i i did start to think to myself well maybe i'll just be a lawyer and um you know i'll just settle into that job and that'll be it that's what i'll do for my life but as i worked as a lawyer it it didn't really um, inspire me, and no offense to any lawyers out there, you know. I, I it just I was um, a business lawyer. Yeah, yeah. be careful. You may need a job. You never know. Yeah, so. I know. Like I'm I'm not planning to go back into law, but who knows? <laughs> you never you never know. But but it, it I I I wanted to get out 
and to talk to people and to try to have a broader impact. You know, lawyers make an impact. They make an important impact, especially, uh, you know, for the clients they're working for. They they make a difference. They're important um, to our our society and, and the way we we operate under the rule of law. Uh, but you know, I I didn't find it satisfying enough. I was in a room quite often, um, just writing agreements or you know merger documents or you know a lot of um, transactional work. And I wanted to get out there and uh, shape opinions and also. Uh, represent opinions. So I was like, you know, I want to get into this. I want to run for office and show people what it's like to be an independent representative. Now, I was going to run as a Republican, but even as a Republican, my intent was get in there and be the most independent Republican I can be, um, you know, represent my community, uh, stick to my principles. I'll tell people when I'm running what my principles are and I'm, I'm going to stick to them. And I did that as a, a state representative, and and it was highly popular. You know, it worked out. Uh, people people did, in fact, think it was great that I was an independent representative, and they elected me to Congress. So, you know, I yeah, you were there actually. You were only in the legislature for a single term, right? Yeah, that's right. And then I ran for Congress, and and um, I I won that primary with uh, by a significant margin. I, I attribute that to my independence. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You established some habits in that state legislative seat that you took with you to Congress. Uh, you, uh, you voted no a lot uh, on, yeah, I did. on a lot yeah. of bills. And you, uh, because I read them. <laughs> yeah. And you said you wouldn't vote on bills that you didn't read, uh, nope. which probably distinguished you from a lot of your colleagues. Yeah. I wouldn't vote to be clear. I wouldn't vote yes on things that I didn't read. I mean, I, I, right, right, I didn't, right. I didn't miss a you single vote, vote in, the, no. in the state house, but right. And yeah. you missed, I think one in Congress. Is that right? Yeah. Unfortunately, because some was, report, reporters not, tied was, you up in the corridor and oh, you, like it's totally my fault. Um, I don't. I don't blame the reporters. The reporters did, in fact, feel very bad about it. It was important to me to be there for every vote. It really bothers me to have missed a vote. I took it very seriously. You know, we're there. We're elected to go represent people, and I. I take it seriously. I took it seriously, and that was a hard thing for me. So let's talk about your experience in Congress, because you know you were um, kind of a thorn in the side of the. Uh, uh, of the leadership uh, from the time that you got. It was interesting. I had John Boehner on here a couple of weeks ago with his book, and mm -hmm. I know you guys weren't terribly close uh, when he was speaker. <laughs> uh, but, you know, he talked about how his career started in the Congress. You know, he was a guy who took on the establishment there over the House Bank and the House Restaurant and all, you know. But... Mm -hmm. You, but by the time, you know, he was the establishment, um, you were you were playing the role in certain ways uh, that he was playing. Tell, tell me about tell me about your odyssey through uh, through the house and and uh, your frustrations. Well, when I got there, um, I mean, one of the things that I I really remember was. Uh, our, for our first vote on the Patriot Act, where I voted um, no uh, on reauthorizing the Patriot Act, and uh, Republican leadership were just stunned by this. I mean, they couldn't even believe what was going on, couldn't understand it. Um, and I'd rallied quite a few other people to vote no on it as well. It failed on the floor, uh, which shocked the leadership team, who thought it would just sail through. And I remember thinking um, right then, boy, they, these people are like on top of you. They're, they're not going to let anything go. Um, even something that is a very strongly held belief, like my opposition to the Patriot Act, opposition to unconstitutional surveillance, they're going to come and give me a hard time over it um, and harass me and tell me, you know, make threats 
uh, you know, with respect to, to my role within the conference. And we, we, should, uh, we should point out that you uh, reacted very strongly to the revelations of Edward Snowden uh, yes. about, about domestic surveillance. And that was at, at the core of a lot yeah, of your that's discomfort. Right. Yeah. But this this incident was even before all of the Snowden revelations. This was pretty early on um, in Congress mm-hmm. in my in my first term, and and yeah, I, I saw the reaction and recognized, boy, they're not letting anything go. They're going to be on top of you. It doesn't matter how how strongly held your beliefs are. Um, doesn't matter what the topic is. They want you to fall in line, and that was different from my experience in the State House, where. Um, at least at the time in the state of Michigan, there was a lot more flexibility to be independent. When I got to Congress, it was a, another story. Um, the place is so partisan that you know you're you're sticking with the team on everything, you know, red team red or blue or or else, you know. And by the time you. by the time you uh, by the time you were done, you couldn't introduce a, an amendment on the floor uh, of the House. In Congress today, at least in the House of Representatives, there is no longer an ability for members to introduce amendments on the House floor. Everything is pushed through the Rules Committee to the extent you even can get an amendment onto the floor for a vote. It has to first go through the Rules Committee. They can eliminate it for any reason. And what ends up happening, and this is true under Republicans and Democrats, is if the Speaker of the House thinks your amendment um, has a chance of passing and is contrary to the speaker's view of how the bill should turn out, that amendment is not getting put onto the floor for a vote. So the only amendments that are going to get onto the floor are the ones that are trivial or meaningless, um, amendments that don't make much of a difference, or amendments that already have the blessings of the leadership team. But if you've got some amendment that's going to run counter to their view of how the bill should turn out, there's no chance they're putting it on there if it has a chance of passing. Well, as you often did. Uh, yeah. I mean, you, uh, you, you were particularly on, on issues uh, of spending. Uh, you, you often opposed uh, the, the view of, of, of people in both uh, caucuses and ultimately got bounced off the budget committee. Yeah. Today's leadership can't, uh, could not expel uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene <laughs> Uh, for propagating conspiracy theories uh, uh, off of her committees. Ultimately, the Democrats threw her off the committees. Uh, but you got thrown off the budget committee uh, yeah. be- because of your views on, on fiscal issue. Yeah, and, and to be clear, to put this in context, I got booted from the budget committee for voting with Republican leadership only 95% of the time. <laughs> so, you know, I did have a tendency to stick with the Republicans on committee votes, and I stuck with them on the budget committee on most of the votes, the vast majority. Um, in fact, I voted for stuff, I'm sure, where I, I did not necessarily support it on the House floor. So, um, you know, I voted with Paul Ryan. He was the chair of the budget committee. Something like, um, you know, 95% plus of the time. And they told me they thought that wasn't good enough. They were upset about it um, because I, especially because I voted against one of his budgets um, one time. And so they, they booted me from the committee. And yet today, you can um, say the most outrageous things. You can threaten other members. You can um, be, you know, uh, spreading all sorts of lies and propaganda, um, smearing people. Uh, you can do all sorts of things, and they won't boot you from the committee. They'll say, well, um, you know, you're Isn't good to go. It, it takes- well, let's talk about that. Um, you know, first of all, I should say, you had this extraordinary conversation. It was off the record for students only with AOC, mm-hmm. uh, Alexandria Ocasio, um, uh, uh, Cortez at uh, at the UFC at the Institute of Politics, um, and it was obvious that you guys had, while you disagreed on many things, you had deep uh, respect for each other, both as people who challenged the establishment of their 
own parties and who believed deeply uh, in certain things. She was chased down the hall by the aforementioned uh, mm-hmm. Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, and uh, uh, and harassed, obviously in an effort to provoke her. She, she wasn't provoked. Um, but there is no recourse there or at least the leadership of the republican party is unwilling to discipline uh her what what is why is it that they are frightened of this um uh you know very very out there and uh radical conspiratorialist uh and what does it say about the party well it says that they're they're afraid of Donald Trump's voters. I mean, they recognize that the diehard Trump voters within the Republican Party probably make up a majority of the party now. Mm-hmm. And this is this is partly because the party has shrunk so much. You know, the the party is um, maybe twenty five percent now of the total you know voting electorate, something like that. Yes, and and maybe fifteen percent of the voting electorate. Are Trump supporters. So if you take fifteen percent out of the twenty-five percent, you're talking about you know maybe maybe three fifths of the Republican Party is are basically diehard Trump voters, and that means that in a lot of districts in this country, um, if you're not you know totally aligned with Donald Trump, you're in trouble. Um, you're going to get voted out of office. Now there are some districts where I think probably. Um, other Republicans have the upper hand, but those districts are fewer and fewer in number. And and so I I think this is the fear. They, the leadership team. Well, you have would have been fear. beaten. Would you not have been beaten if you had run in a primary in your district? I don't know. I don't think so, actually. You know, I'll say this. After I made the decisions I made about the Republican Party, my popularity within the district went up. It didn't go down. Um, I actually left Congress with my highest level of popularity of, of any time <laughs> I was in Congress. Your successor, uh, Peter Meyer, uh, mm-hmm. uh, voted for impeachment. He was one of the 10 yeah. representatives who voted for impeachment. Trump has hung a target on all those uh, legislators, including Liz Cheney, who we'll talk about in a second. Uh, what are his chances of being reelected, do you think? I don't see anyone currently in that Republican primary who's going to who's going to beat um, Peter Meyer. I, I just don't see it. Now, that's not to say a, a more serious competitor couldn't show up, but I just don't see it right now. And I've encouraged him to remain true to himself. I think that's the most important thing. Um, you, you ran for office on a set of principles, and I don't agree with him on everything. You know, we have our we're not the same person. We have disagreements. Um, but I, I respect people who stay true to themselves. Um, this is why, again, I have um, uh, some camaraderie with AOC and there are others. Yeah, talk about that. Tell who, me about who her. I don't, you know, who I don't necessarily agree with on a whole bunch of issues. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I look, I see her, like a few others in Congress, as, as people who will stick to their principles, stick to their guns, who are upfront with people about who they are and are willing to challenge leadership, are willing to um, stand up for their, for their views and their principles and their constituents, regardless of the pressure they're facing. And I don't see many members of Congress like that. You know, um, another one like that on the Republican side is Thomas Massey. You know, these are very different people. They're people who can go to the House floor and leadership can be pressing them that they must absolutely vote one way and they're willing to vote the other way because of something they believe deep down in their heart. And, um, and they're trying to represent their constituents the best they can and, and stand up for the principles they believe in. That matters to me. I want to see a Congress full of people like that, even if they have very different views from me, even if they're pushing you know, democratic socialism or whatever. Uh, that's okay because that's what our representative body is for. It's for us to work through those ideas. She should be allowed to present her ideas on the House floor, just like I should be allowed to present my ideas on the House floor. Let's have a rigorous debate. Let's treat Congress as a discovery process where we discover what is the will of the people acting through their representatives. 
and then we get an outcome. And that's, I think, how our system's intended to operate. But today, the way it operates is very top-down. Um, it's, it's very much like an oligarchy. And I, I know when I use that phrase, maybe, or that word, people might think that's too strong, but I really believe that's what it's like. Uh, I don't think there is really a legislative body at this point. I, I don't think you have uh, a representative body. It is very much a top-down operation. And for the most part, the Speaker of the House and the Senate Majority Leader, and to some extent, the minority leaders in each party, run the show, along with the President of the United States. And the other people are just there to press buttons. When uh, John Boehner was here, he said, well, you know, the Republican Party has its, its wackadoodles, you know, this is relative to Marjorie uh, mm-hmm. Taylor Green, and, and the Democratic Party has its AOCs. And, uh, you know, I thought that, and you hear that a lot. That is what you hear from uh, Republicans when you ask them about why these QAnon representatives uh, are allowed to sort of uh, uh, run free without any uh, consequences for the things that they say or do. And uh, it's, that struck me as grossly unfair because whether you agree or not that every uh, American should have health coverage, whether you agree or not that uh, climate change is a uh, existential crisis and we ought to deal with it, these are serious ideas. This is not about. This is not suggesting that there are space lasers run by Jews in space that are starting forest fires in California, and that's what that not climate change is why there are forest fires there's it's 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 insulting yeah i think these kinds of unfair comparisons happen all the time um there's some extent to which john boehner did that to me as well you know like i think it's unfair when we just take people and just because they tend to be a thorn in their party's side or whatever it might be uh to categorize them the same way and say it's all the same um or whatever else you want to say about um AOC, I think that she does bring real ideas to the table. You may not agree with them, but I, I think she actually has a set of principles and, and brings those to the House floor uh, and, and tries to fight for those things. And there are other people who I think are mostly there um, for self-aggrandizement and you know to, to do, do a little bit of entertaining and raise some money for their, for their campaign committee. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. And now, back to the show. One of your uh, biographical items is that you were a founder of the House Freedom Caucus. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, tell me about that because the House Freedom Caucus became, over time, really an organ of Trumpism. That they they became his strongest supporters there, and probably, and, and you became one of his strongest critics. Tell me about that that process of separation. That was, uh, I mean, that was a, a difficult part of my time in Congress when we founded the House Freedom Caucus. I was at my most hopeful. We had finally put together something that I felt could be used to open up the process to um, to create a more representative body. And in time, it was turned against that completely. It was it became the opposite. It became a tool for cementing power in the executive and um and decreasing uh true representation on the house floor so so you know it's it was the most hopeful and and in many ways something that um i'm I'm very sad about to, to see it turn that way i i actually wrote the mission statement for the house freedom caucus if you go and look uh, i think probably still on their twitter i don't i don't know for sure but the mission statement is very specific um uh about it's about it's not being a conservative group. It's not about, um, you know, supporting one party. I even was able to um, get them to keep the word conservative out of the whole mission statement and name of the group, because I don't think that's the point. 
if a Democrat agrees with our principles or someone on the left, then so be it. I don't I don't see any problem with that. There's nothing in the mission statement that I think a Democrat couldn't agree with. Um, so so I wanted it to be open. I want it to be a, a caucus that brings transparency. And instead, it was turned into a, a tool for one man. And near the end of my time there, I I uh, made the plea to them to to turn this around, to remember what we are here for. And the problem was the number of allies I had in the caucus kept dwindling. You know, like I I had Mark Sanford and Raul Labrador, and as as these people started to drop away, you know, you're left with. You know, it's just you who are there saying, let's do these. Well, know. and the fact that they keep dropping away is for, for people whose, whose uh, principal mission is to sustain themselves in public office, a pretty negative example, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, um, it, it shows how quickly people will turn. And, and that was also very hard because people I know, people I thought I knew really well, really, really well. Like I'd gone to dinner with them. I'd spent time with their families. They turned out to be totally different people than what I thought. And that was very hard for me because um, I think of myself as pretty good at, at seeing people for what they are. And, um, you know, I, I'm not easily duped. I, I, I look at people and I try to make an honest assessment about them. I don't fall for politicians. Let's put it that way. Well, why do you think that they changed? So for some of them, it was um, at first an effort to give Donald Trump a chance in a sense, like, look, we don't like this guy. Um, He's a buffoon. I mean, some of the biggest defenders of Donald, Donald Trump in Congress today were saying things that were far more critical of him than anything I've ever said publicly. Like, you know, I, I but heard they were saying it privately. You're saying they were saying it privately behind the scenes. They would insult him in ways that I didn't even think was appropriate. Then I'd see them go on Fox News in the evening and they'd make some excuse for him. And at first it was kind of like, well, we just have to like play along. They didn't really believe in it. But then at some point, like they just changed. And it was it happened around around the late 2018 to early 2019, they just changed totally. And it was like people who I knew uh, very well were all of a sudden totally different people. I could talk to them about something where if I talked to them about it two years earlier, they would have been totally with me. And then in 2019, you're talking to them about it. And it's like you're talking in a different language or, um, you know, they, they don't even understand what you're saying. They can't relate to you. They think you're the crazy one. Um, you're the one who's like somehow lost touch when they've totally flipped their personality. But isn't it what you said earlier? Isn't it fear of Trump voters? Yes. I, so my theory, on I have a theory on why it happened around that time. Around late 2018, uh, you had two things happen. You had the Kavanaugh stuff going on, um, mm-hmm. the hearings and the and all the um, the questioning of Kavanaugh's history, um, Justice Kavanaugh, mm-hmm. and and you also had the election, the 2018 midterms. And I think in both cases, you had these Republicans who were highly skeptical of Trump decide that the the dangers of the left were greater than the dangers of Trump. They, they made a calculated decision that like, look, maybe Donald Trump is right. Maybe we're going about this all wrong. Maybe the, the left is more dangerous than we think. Um, that maybe, the, you know, from their perspective, they're, uh, from the perspective of my, of my Republican colleagues, maybe they're willing to um, smear this um, Supreme Court nominee for no good reason. Um, you know, again, from their perspective, mm-hmm. and uh, and and they looked at the midterms and they saw Republicans get wiped out. And a lot of people forget that that the 2018 midterms were a, an election where Republican leaders and Republican candidates across the country were trying to keep a distance from Trump, and then they got wiped out. And so a lot of them turned around then, and the ones who survived, who came back to Congress, said, "Look." Um, our party took an approach of like, let's not talk about Trump. Let's talk about the issues. Let's stay away from all the Trump stuff. 
and we got hit pretty hard. And so, again, that reinforced in their minds, maybe Trump has the formula. So let, let me ask you about, about Liz Cheney. Obviously, you and she had some significant dis- disagreements when you were yeah, that's for in sure. Congress, and she was part of leadership, on, on certainly on these national security issues, on issues of surveillance and so on. She, she would have been absolutely on the other side of that fight. Uh, but tell me what you think about what she's done now and um, what what is she uh, going to be shunned as you were and what what is her future here and what does it mean for the Republican Party? So for me, this is a little bit complex and, and <laughs> I probably will give the most nuanced view on uh, Liz Cheney that anyone's going to give. It, in my experience as a member of Congress, I didn't have any difficulties with her personally. Like she was um, fairly polite to me, fairly respectful. I can't say that of most of the people in leadership. We didn't have a whole lot of interactions, but in my in in my interactions with her, I always thought she was um, uh, someone who uh, was willing to to at least listen and engage with me. Um, with that said. Uh, I think this this effort to um, turn her into some sort of hero is a bit misguided. Uh, we had four years where she could have stood up and said, there's a problem here. Um, what Donald Trump is doing is wrong. And, and granted, she did do that a couple times, um, not of any significance, mostly like minor dings here and there. And usually related to things involving like foreign policy, she'd take a swipe at them. But for the most part, it's almost exclusively positive or supportive uh, for four years. And in fact, she never came to my defense. She never came to, to my aid when I was saying what the president's doing is wrong. I, for a long time, I was warning that the president's approach could lead to things like violence, could lead to a lot of um, animosity and contempt and all sorts of things that would be harmful to our country. She didn't stand up for that view. And in fact, those of us who uh, were for impeachment previously, whether it was related to the Mueller report or the Ukraine stuff, she mocked us. You know, she went on TV and said, it's a sham, um, this sham impeachment to remove a duly elected president. Uh, it, you know, it was always like, uh, from her perspective, a partisan game that the Democrats and apparently Justin Amash and, and maybe Mitt Romney are, are playing. So, you know, I, I think one of the biggest problems we have in politics is that when someone is inconsistent like that, uh, you know, where they're, uh, they're, they're doing the wrong thing for four years, and then they flip on a dime, there's a tendency to turn them into heroes. And I think that's that's a huge problem because it lets people get away with things. With that said, I also think we need to be careful because you want to give people the room to learn and change. I'm not saying that we shouldn't say it's a good thing when someone does learn, but we have, we should think about what are the um, what are the reasons this person changed. From my perspective, here's what happened. She thought that after the Capitol insurrection, um, the party was turning, that this was it. She, she even saw Kevin McCarthy go on the House floor and say some negative things about Trump. She saw Lindsey Graham say, like, I've had enough, I'm done. She saw people starting to turn, and she thought this is the turn. And so she wanted to put herself out there up front to say, look, I'm going to lead this turn. She never really liked Trump. She pretended for four years that she did. But she never really liked him. So she was like, now is my opportunity to turn. I think she actually miscalculated that she made a mistake. But once she jumped into the pool, she was stuck. Now she's just got to swim. And so I think it's, it's basically a miscalculation. I really believe that if she had not seen the whole party moving, she would not have moved either. And that to me is... Um, indicative of the problem we have in Congress, that people are waiting until they feel they're safe. I think she thought she was safe. She moved. Now she's got no choice. She already moved. She can't She can't backtrack. In fairness to her, she put out a statement in advance of the impeachment vote. She did. Uh, saying that 
people should vote their conscience, and you know it's a fairly strong uh, statement. You're saying she did, that, but she, again, that was after she, but, the. After but you're saying that she didn't have a handle. She's the third-ranking Republican in the House. She didn't have a handle on the fact that she wasn't going to have a whole lot of people standing with her. I don't think she did. No, and and anyone can see why that would be because you had Kevin McCarthy come to the floor and say, "Look, this is it." Like. Uh, what Trump is responsible, he said. Kevin McCarthy himself said Trump is responsible. Um, people were really turning on the Republican Party in that brief period of time. And I think she saw it as an opportunity to jump forward. This is my assessment. Look, I don't I don't have I didn't ask Liz Cheney her opinion on this at the time. So this is my assessment of it as an observer. But as someone who is an informed observer who is who has interacted with the Republican conference for all those years, who's been a part of, of, of that group and has been a part of politics and has seen how it goes. And, and to me, it has the same sort of change on a dime sort of aspect to it that I saw in my House Freedom Caucus members, except they changed on a dime in the other direction. And, and that bothers me. Um, that bothers me as someone who spent a lot of time pointing out the risks here and the dangers and then, uh, you know, I was essentially criticized by her. And, and by the way, I say this not just of her. I'm not trying to pick on Liz Cheney. There are a lot of CNN commentators who I've seen, you know, you bring in Republicans, uh, former yeah. Republicans. I've seen them flip on a dime, too. When, when Justin Amash is saying, hey, Trump is a risk, uh, Trump this and Trump that, these commentators are coming on and saying, oh, Justin's a gadfly. Uh, Justin's out of step with the party. Then when Liz Cheney comes out and says it, all of a sudden they're like, oh, what a hero. Isn't it wonderful? Uh, an independent woman standing on, standing up to all these men and all, all the rest. I think that stuff is just as damaging, just as dangerous to uh, our politics as anything else because it's just, it's just another um, uh you know, manifestation of this bigger problem, which is that people are just are not honest about who they are. And again, I say that not as someone who's saying you can never change, you can never grow, you can never learn. But I'd like to see some real development when people learn, like, what is it that changed your mind? Um, Liz Cheney, what is it that you saw um, that made it so different for you versus, you know, how Trump was behaving, say, before January 6th. I mean, I don't think there was any radical difference there. It was the same. But what, because the outcome was different? Because that was the one time they stormed the Capitol? I put that out there, and it's a nuanced perspective. I don't think it's a perspective that, that most people ascribe to because people want to make everyone either a hero or an enemy. Again, I have no ill will toward her. Like personally, I don't. I don't have any issues with her in terms of our personal relationship. Um, and and actually, I've told people many times who have talked to me about this, Republicans in Congress who have asked me about Liz Cheney. I've said, look, she's um, she's respectful. Uh, I I think that um, she will uh, engage with you in an honest way, but. When it comes to this thing, I don't think that it was much different from what a lot of people did. My reading of your history and your record and my knowledge of you, limited though it may be, uh, you know, I, I, I would say you are someone who's been very consistent um, in your principles. Um, and I guess uh, the question is, um, can you, can that, can that, should there be nuance? Should there be not in fundamental principles, but in in positions? You know, I read uh, your, your tweet the other day in response to the uh, the unmasking announcement, and you wrote uh, and you said in response to President Biden tweeting, "The rule is now simple: get vaccinated, wear a mask until you do. The choice is yours." Amash tweeted a requirement. Uh, a requirement to do one or the other of two things demanded by another person against your will is not called a choice. It's called coercion, and we reject it in a free society. That is co completely consistent with your principles, and I respect that. Uh, I'm just wondering, are there any limits to it? If, if you know that you, for example, are carrying a virus or could be carrying mm -hmm. a virus that could kill people and you expose others to it, is that an expression of free will or is it endang endangerment of other people? And wh where do you draw the line? 
You know, I, I, I respect nuance. I believe in nuance. Twitter is not nuanced generally is part of the problem. <laughs> it's very hard to engage on something like, uh, you know, the topic of coercion or ch versus choice uh, in a Twitter um, discussion because, yeah. um, because yeah, it is Twitter very, is not to nuance is it, an enemy of Twitter. It, yeah. Because it is very nuanced, but um, yeah, I, look, when it comes to something like coercion, there's, there is coercion in our lives. Uh, what uh, I like to see is that it's not the product of arbitrary will. In other words, that it's not one person um, through his or her arbitrary will making a decision for all people and saying, well, these are your these are your two choices. And for me, the way you limit it is you make it as non-arbitrary as possible. In other words, you have a representative body that makes decisions. This doesn't mean when you have a representative body that there's not any coercion, but there is some kind of um, standard for assessing whether it's, um, you know, uh, whether it's been vetted by a, a broad swath of the electorate or whether it's just the will of one person, you know, I, so I, so when I see, um, a rule, you know, dictated by one person. And, and again, I, I think my, my concern in that tweet from Biden was, uh, president Biden is not so much that, um, you know, he framed it as a rule. It's that he framed it as a choice. And I wanted to make clear that that's not really a choice to tell people it's A or B and that's it. Um, but but when, I, when someone comes up with a rule, I want it to be the product of uh, a, a representative system. I want it to be something that is um, consistent with the rule of law, that it's not arbitrary, that uh, the rule is equally applied, that it has... Um, considered the circumstances and and I think a blanket statement like that was not really that type of statement for me I mean from the president if there's a natural disaster or some sort of catastrophe and uh, the authorities rope off that area and say you can't go in there should yeah. there should you convene a, a ruling no, uh, a, a, a legislative body or some sort no. of isn't this sort of the same though no, not I mean, really. It's in the, like, um, when you have a public health crisis. I, I think there's a difference between emergencies and crises. Uh, when you have an emergency, um, you absolutely, in our system, allow the executive to take action quickly because there's no alternative, really. Like, you don't have time for a body to meet. Um, so the executive is going to take uh, quick action. There's some sense in which this is like a, um, you know, extra constitutional principle. It's, it's not really, um, you know, a part of our constitutional system. It's like, well, there's a fire and we have to wait for the legislative body to decide whether we're going to rescue people. You know, the, the governor can say, like, I'm going to I'm moving these resources and I'm going to get people out of there. But that's very different. And this is where I think a lot on the left make a mistake. That's very different from an ongoing crisis that, that is um, like six months long or, or 12 months long, where we continue to uh, ascribe emergency powers to the executive, whether it's a governor or the president, and say, well, look, um, it's really important and it's a bad situation, so we're going to let the executive do this. Being really important and being a bad situation are not legitimate justifications for tossing away our representative system of government, yeah, um, well, it may so, be that it may be, but it may so be. So, if anything, I, ha I bring some nuance to it. If anything, yeah, uh, no, there's no doubt about it. I mean, some would argue that six hundred thousand dead constitutes an emergency and a crisis. Uh, that's a r rather large total, and a lot of decisions had to be made uh, to try and uh, contain that. If perhaps if some decisions had been made earlier. Uh, that number would be much smaller. So, but if I might push back just quickly, the scope of the crisis is not justification for for using emergency powers. You know, the the emergency means, in, at least in the in the government context, emergency means that the legislative body doesn't have an opportunity to meet to handle the situation. That there's not sufficient time. Um, there's not sufficient sufficient ability for this legislative body to meet. 
you you can't say well something is really bad and so we're going to decide that um, the executive can do things unilaterally now because otherwise there is no limit to the kinds of things the executive can say is just really bad. There's no ability for the people to be represented. I think that's very dangerous because I, I just don't want to be in that situation as a country. So I want us to work through the legislative process. I'm not sure you want to pick uh, the virus as the cross to die on, but I understand that there's a great well, that's what being, but that's what principles are about, right? <laughs> right. Principles yeah. only matter. Principles only matter when the decision is tough. They don't matter when it's an easy choice. Principles are useless. What? Who needs principles to tell you to do the easy thing? You need principles when actually your instincts are to, to do the opposite. You know, you thought about running for president on the libertarian line in 2020. Uh, you decided that wasn't a practical route for you to go. Uh, is that something that you could see doing, especially now that you've confessed right here on the Axe Files that you uh, you saw yourself as a kid, uh, uh, as the as the president? Do you um, do you see uh, that as a poss possibility uh, come next election time? I don't rule anything out like that. I'm very happy to be back home with my family. I don't really miss Congress the way uh, maybe I even thought I might miss it. I've I've been very happy with my non-Congress life, especially getting the chance to spend more time with my kids. That, that makes a difference to me. Yeah. And, and I don't want to lose that. Um, yeah, yeah. My, kids are, my kids are still pretty young, but you know, they're getting to the age where they're going to start getting into high school and college even um, in the next goes by years. fast. I can tell yeah. you that. Yeah. 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 And so I wouldn't rule anything out in my life. Like if I want to get back into politics someday, I'll, I'll do it. And if I don't, I'm perfectly happy not doing it as well. But I, I do think that we need to think through things differently. My concern with Biden uh, becoming president was not one of like, does Biden have good character versus Donald Trump? I think he has much better character than Donald Trump. It wasn't even so much about his policies, even though I have my disagreements with, with President Biden's policies. It's that I don't think he, like a lot of other people in politics, recognize what is the true problem in our politics that concentrated power centralized power has really done a lot of damage to our legislative system and to our representative system and there's no there's no going back to a world where um people are at peace with each other and less partisan unless we correct that problem like he can be the kindest gentlest man in the world but if we have a legislative body where members of Congress do not feel like they are active participants in it, where they feel beholden to just a few leaders, you will have massive partisanship and it will permeate then into society and then it feeds back up. And I think that, uh, that Democrats are not understanding why Trump rose up, why Republicans are so angry, is because they do feel the system is totally broken. And they viewed Trump as a weapon against this broken system. They said, well, all of Congress, these guys are liars and cheats and they don't care about the process and they'll run roughshod over anyone ever anyways. They don't care about our representatives. It's just a few people at the top deciding things. Well, we'll just put Trump in there and he'll fight back and we'll fight fire with fire. Yeah, there's no doubt. If you, there's no doubt if you want to stop think. that stuff, you have to return to a more normal process, one where people are, are required to work together, are required to... Um, accept differences, must tolerate differences. When you get back to that kind of system, we'll be able to restore America as a place where people can get along and where partisanship is not um, to the extreme. And I'm not convinced that President Biden understands that yeah. and that a lot of people in leadership roles understand that. You know, uh, it may you may be right, and there's no doubt that the system is way screwed up now. We haven't talked about the impact that social media, about which you yeah, have yeah. great uh, uh, understanding, has contributed to that. Uh, but it also is true that people have fundamental concerns in their lives, yes. and a lot of what dis a lot of what uh, angers them is that they feel that people in Washington are more concerned about who's up and who's down, whether the blue team's winning or the red team's winning, and the gridlock that results from that uh, than they are than they yep. are in actually solving problems. And, uh, you know, he's making a bet that if he can get some big things done that actually help improve people's lives, that 
that will restore some faith. Uh, you know, now I, I hear what you're saying, and there, you know, look, there's plenty that should be done uh, to uh, clean up the system, uh, but um, it may be that uh, it's a bit of an indulgence to say that the only thing that matters is cleaning up the system um, if the end result isn't tangible improvement in the lives of people and communities. But that may be a progressive answer to uh, a libertarian well, I, I think critique. the ends are important. Um, like, there's no doubt uh, about what you're saying. People do care about the ends, but the means are important. And there is a tendency, an increasing tendency in our politics on both the left and the right to believe that the the ends justify the means. And I think that's a very dangerous approach to politics and life and will only result in more tension and more hostility. You can do all the great things as a president and say, I, you know, uh, I, I wanted to give the people good things, so I just signed any, anything by executive order or you know, one party decided everything and that's good enough because we'll get, we'll get some money out and help people. But uh, beneath all that, if, if you don't have the proper means for achieving that, there will be a lot of tension that builds up and there's a lot of hostility and resentment that builds up. Um, not everyone's going to agree on all those ends and there will be, um, you'll never dissipate that, that, that hostility and tension until you accept that um, the worthiness of the ends is not justification for, for all the means, you know. It's been ever so in American politics, though, in American history. So, um, you know, a lot of the Yes, there were bi there was bipartisan by bi some bipartisanship involved in some of the major initiatives over time in response to the challenges facing the country, but by and large they were driven by one party or another by a president and his party. So anyway, listen honestly, I really enjoy talking to you, brother, and I want to continue uh, our conversation. Hopefully, for years to come, I have to thank you for your time today and uh, for your time at the Institute of Politics and for inspiring these young people and, uh, and becoming a mentor to them. Maybe, and maybe they can, and maybe they, and they <laughs> have hope the capacity so. perhaps to sort some of these things out. You know, I've been inspired by those, by those students and I think they will make a difference in our country. And, and I, I encourage them to be independent, but I want to thank you as well for, for considering me to, to be a part of those seminars so that I could have those engagements and, and learn myself from the students as well as give them the chance to learn from me. Everybody wins. That's what we, that's what we want. Justin Amash, great to be with you. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks so much, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.